The Crystal Shard, Chapter 13, As the Wielder Bids Gather together your people and go, Big Grin, the wizard told the enormous frost giant that stood before him in Krishal Tirith's throne room. Remember that you represent the army of Akar Kessel. You are the first group to go into the area, and secrecy is our key to victory. Do not fail me. I shall be watching over your every move. We'll not fail ye, master, the giant responded. The lair will be set and readied for your coming. I have faith in you, Kessel assured the huge commander. Now be off. The frost giant lifted the blanketed mirror that Kessel had given it, gave one final bow to its master, and walked out of the room. You should not have sent him, hissed Urtu, who had been standing invisible behind the throne during the conversation. The Verbig and the Frost Giant leader will be easy to mark in the community of humans and dwarves. Big Grin is a wise leader, Kessel shot back, angered at the demon's impertinence. The giant is cunning enough to keep troops out of sight. Yet... The humans would have been better suited for this mission, as Krishinaban has shown you. I am the leader, screamed Kessel. He pulled the crystal shard out from under his robes and waved it menacingly at Urtu, leaning forward in an attempt to emphasize the threat. Krishinaban advises, but I decide. Do not forget your place, mighty demon, I am the wielder of the shard, and I shall not tolerate your questioning my every move. Urtu's blood-red eyes narrowed dangerously, and Kessel straightened back in his throne, suddenly reconsidering the wisdom of threatening the demon. But Urtu calmed quickly, accepting the minor inconveniences of Kessel's foolish outbursts for the long-term gains it stood to make. Krenshinaban has existed since the dawn of the world, the demon rasped, making one final point. It has orchestrated a thousand campaigns much grander than the one you're about to undertake. Perhaps you would be wise to give more credence to its advice. Kessel twitched nervously. The Shard had indeed counseled him to use the humans he would soon command in the first excursion into the region. He had been able to create a dozen excuses to validate his choice of sending the giants, but in truth, he'd sent Big Grin's people more to illustrate his undeniable command to himself, to the Shard, and to the impertinent demon, than for any possible military gains. I shall follow Krishinaban's advice when I deem it appropriate, he told Urtu. He pulled a second crystal, an exact duplicate of Krishinaban and the crystal he'd used to raise the tower, out from one of the many pockets of his robe. Take this to the appropriate spot and perform the ceremony of raising, he instructed. I shall join you through the mirror door when all is ready. You wish to raise a second Krishal Tirith while the first still stands, Urtu balked. The drain on the relic shall be enormous. Silence, Kessel ordered, trembling visibly. 
go and perform the ceremony. Let the shard remain my concern. Urtu took the replica of the relic and bowed low. Without a further word, the demon stalked out of the room. It understood that Kessel was foolishly demonstrating his control over the shard at the expense of proper restraint and wise military tactics. The wizard did not have the capacity or the experience to orchestrate this campaign, yet the shard continued to back him. Urtu had made a secret offer to it to dispose of Kessel and take over it as wielder, but Krishinabon had refused the demon. It preferred the demonstrations that Kessel demanded of it to appease his own insecurities over the constant struggle of control it would face against the powerful demon. Though he walked among giants and trolls, the proud barbarian king's stature had not diminished. He strode defiantly through the iron door of the Black Tower and pushed through the wretched troll guards with a threatening growl. He hated this place of sorcery, and had decided to ignore the calling when the singular spinet of the tower appeared on the horizon like an icy finger risen from the flat ground. Yet, in the end, he could not resist the summons of the master of Kershal Tirith. Hefstag hated the wizard. By all measures of a tribesman, Akar Kessel was weak, using tricks and demonic callings to do the work of muscle and Hefstag hated him even more because he could not refute the power that the wizard commanded. The barbarian king threw aside the dangling beaded strands that sectioned off Akar Kessel's private audience hall on the tower's second level. The wizard reclined on a huge satin pillow in the middle of the room, his long, painted fingernails tapping impatiently on the floor. Several nude slave girls, their minds bent and broken under the shard's domination, waited on every whim of the shard's wielder. It angered Hefstag to see women enslaved to such a puny, pitiful shell of a man. He considered, and not for the first time, a sudden charge, burying his great axe deep into the wizard's skull. But the room was filled with strategically located screens and pillars, and the barbarian knew, even if he refused to believe that the wizard's will could deny his rage, that Kessel's pet demon wouldn't be far from its master. "'So good that you could join me, noble Hefstag,' said Kessel in a calm, disarming way. Urtu and Krishinabon were close at hand. He felt quite secure, even in the presence of the rugged barbarian king. He fondled one of the slaves absently, showing off his absolute rule. "'Really, you should have come sooner,' Already many of my forces are assembled. The first group of scouts has already departed. He leaned forward toward the barbarian to emphasize his point. If I can find no room for your people in my plans, he said with an evil snicker, then I shall have no need for your people at all. Hefstag didn't flinch, or change his expression in the least. "'Come now, mighty king,' the wizard crooned. "'Sit and share in the riches of my table.' Hefstag clung to his pride and remained unmoving. "'Very well,' snapped Kessel. He clenched his fist and uttered a command word. "'To whom do you owe your fealty?' he demanded. Hefstag's body went rigid. To Akar Kessel, he responded to his own repulsion. And 
tell me again who it is that commands the tribes of the tundra. They follow me, Hefstag replied, and I follow Akar Kessel. Akar Kessel commands the tribes of the tundra. The wizard released his fist, and the barbarian king slumped back. I take little joy in doing that to you, said Kessel, rubbing a burr in one of his painted nails. Do not make me do it again. He pulled a scroll out from behind the satin pillow and tossed it to the floor. Sit before me, he instructed Hefstag. Tell me again of your defeat. Hefstag took his place on the floor in front of his master and unrolled the parchment. It was a map of ten towns. Chapter 14 Lavender Eyes Brunner had regained his dour visage by the time he called on Wolfgar the following morning. Still, it touched the dwarf deeply, though, that he was able to hide this fact, to see Aegis Fang casually slung over the young barbarian's shoulder as if it had always been there and always belonged there. Wolfgar, too, was wearing a sullen mask. He passed it off as anger at being put into the service of another, but if he had examined his emotions more closely, he would have recognized that he was truly saddened about separating from the dwarf. Caterbury was waiting for them at the junction of the final passage that led to the open air. "'Sure that you're a sour pear this fine morning,' she said as they approached. "'But not to mind.' The sun will put a smile on your faces. You seem pleased at this parting, Wolfgar answered, a bit perturbed, though the sparkle in his eyes at the sight of the girl belied his anger. You know, of course, that I am to leave the dwarven town this day. Caterbury waved her hand nonchalantly. You will be back soon enough, she smiled, and be happy for your going. Consider the lessons you will soon learn needed if you're ever to reach your goals. Brunner turned toward the barbarian. Wolfgar had never spoken with him about what lay ahead after the term of indenture, and the dwarf, though he meant to prepare Wolfgar as well as he could, hadn't honestly come to terms with Wolfgar's resolve to leave. Wolfgar scowled at the girl, showing her beyond doubt that their discussion at the unfulfilled vow was a private matter, of her own discretion Caterbury hadn't intended to discuss the issue any further anyway. She simply enjoyed teasing some emotion out of Wolfgar. Caterbury recognized the fire that burned in the proud young man. She saw whenever he looked upon Brunner, his mentor, whether he would admit it or not, and she marked it whenever Wolfgar looked at her. "'I am Wolfgar, son of Björnigar,' he boasted proudly, throwing back his broad shoulders and straightening his firm jaw. I have grown among the tribe of the Elk, the finest warriors in all of Icewind Dale. I know nothing of this tutor, but he will be hard-pressed indeed to teach me anything in the ways of battle. Caterbury exchanged a knowing smile with Brunner as the dwarf and Wolfgar passed her. Farewell, Wolfgar, son of Björnagar, she called after them. When next we meet... I'll mark well your lessons of humility. Wolfgar looked back and scowled again, but Caterbury's wide smile diminished not at all. 
The two left the darkness of the mines shortly after dawn, traveling down through the rocky valley to the appointed spot where they would meet the drow. It was a cloudless, warm summer day, the blue of the sky paled by the morning haze. Wolfgar stretched high into the air, reaching to the limits of his long muscles. His people were meant to live in the wide expanses of the open tundra, and he was relieved to be out of the stifling closeness of the dwarven-made caverns. Drizdu Arden was at the spot waiting for them when they arrived. The drow leaned against the shadowed side of a boulder, seeking relief from the glare of the sun. The hood of his cloak was pulled low in front of his face as further protection. Drizzt considered it the curse of his heritage, that no matter how many years he remained among the surface dwellers, his body would never fully adapt to the sunlight. He held himself motionless, though, as he was fully aware of the approach of Bruner and Wolfgar. Let them make the first moves, he thought, wanting to judge how the boy would react to the new situation. Curious about the mysterious figure who was to be his new teacher and master, Wolfgar boldly walked over and stood directly in front of the drow. Driz watched him approach from under the shadows of his cowl, amazed at the graceful interplay of the huge man's corded muscles. The drow had originally planned to humor Brunner in his outrageous request for a short while, then make some excuse and be on his way. But as he noted the smooth flow and the spring of the barbarian's long strides, an ease unnatural in someone his size, Drizzt found himself growing interested in the challenge of developing the young man's seemingly limitless potential. Drizzt realized that the most painful part of meeting this man, as it was with everyone he met, would be Wolfgar's initial reaction to him. Anxious to get it over with, he pulled back his hood and squarely faced the barbarian. Wolfgar's eyes widened in horror and disgust. A dark elf! he cried incredulously. Sorceress dog! He turned on Bruner as though he had been betrayed. Surely you could not ask this of me. I have no need nor desire to learn the magical deceits of this decrepit race. You'll teach it to fight. No more, Bruner said. The dwarf had expected this. He wasn't worried in the least, fully aware, as was Caterbury, that Drizzt would teach the overly proud young man some needed humility. Wolfgar snorted defiantly. What can I learn of fighting from a weakling elf? My people are bred of true warriors. He eyed Driz with open contempt. Not trickster dogs like his kind. Driz calmly looked to Bruner for permission to begin the day's lesson. The dwarf smirked at the barbarian's ignorance and nodded his consent. In an eye blink, the two scimitars leaped from their sheaths and challenged the barbarian. Instinctively, Wolfgar raised his warhammer to strike. But Drizzt was the quicker. The flat sides of his weapon slapped in rapid succession against Wolfgar's cheeks, drawing thin streaks of blood. Even as the barbarian moved to counter, Drizzt spun one of the deadly blades in a declining arc, its razor edge diving at the back of Wolfgar's knee. Wolfgar managed to slip his leg out of the way, but the action, as Drizzt had anticipated, put him off balance. The drow casually slipped the scimitars back into their leather scabbards as his foot slammed into the barbarian's stomach, sending him sprawling into the dust, the magical hammer flying from his hands. Now that you understand each other, declared Bruner, trying to hide his amusement for the sake of Wolfgar's fragile ego. I'll be leaving you. He looked questioningly at Driz to make sure that the drow was comfortable with the situation. 
Give me a few weeks. Drizzt answered with a wink, returning the dwarf's smile. Brunner turned back to Wolfgar, who had retrieved Aegis Fang and was resting on one knee, eyeing the elf with blank amazement. Heed his words, boy, the dwarf instructed one last time, or he'll cut you into pieces small enough for a vulture's gullet. For the first time in nearly five years, Wolfgar looked out beyond the borders of ten towns to the open stretch of Icewind Dale that spread wide before him. He and the drow had spent the remainder of their first day together hiking down the length of the valley and around the eastern spurs of Kelvin's Carn. Here, just above the base of the northern side of the mountain, was the shallow cave where Drizzt made his home. Sparsely furnished with a few skins and some cooking pots, the cave had no luxuries to speak of, but it served the unpretentious drow ranger well, allowing him the privacy and seclusion that he preferred above the taunts and threats of the humans. To Wolfgar, whose people rarely stayed in any place longer than a single night, the cave itself seemed a luxury. As dusk began to settle over the tundra, Drizzt, in the comfortable shadows deeper in the cave, stirred from his short nap. Wolfgar was pleased that the drow had trusted him enough to sleep easily, so obviously vulnerable on their first day together. This, coupled with the beating Drizzt had given him earlier, had caused Wolfgar to question his initial outrage at the sight of the Dark Elf. "'Do we begin our sessions this night, then?' Drizzt asked. "'You are the master,' Wolfgar said bitterly. "'I am only the slave.' "'No more a slave than I,' replied Drizzt. Wolfgar turned to him curiously. "'We are both indebted to the dwarf,' Drizzt explained. I owe him my life many times over, and thus have agreed to teach you my skill in battle. You follow an oath that you made to him in exchange for your life. Thus you are obliged to learn what I have to teach. I am no man's master, nor what I ever want to be. Wolfgar turned back to the tundra. He didn't fully trust Driz yet, though he couldn't figure out what ulterior motives the drow could possibly have by pursuing with a friendly façade. We fulfill our debts to Brunner together, said Drizzt. He empathized with the emotions Wolfgar was feeling as the young man gazed out over the plains of his homeland for the first time in years. Enjoy this night, barbarian. Go about as you please, and remember again the feel of the wind on your face. We shall begin at the fall of tomorrow's night. He left then to allow Wolfgar the privacy he desired. Wolfgar could not deny that he appreciated the respect the drow had shown him. During the daytime, Driz rested in the cool shadows of the cave while Wolfgar acclimated himself to the new area and hunted for their supper. By night, they fought. Driz pressed the young barbarian relentlessly, slapping him with the flat of the scimitar every time he opened a gap in his defenses. The exchanges often escalated dangerously, for Wolfgar was a proud warrior and grew enraged and frustrated at the drow's superiority. This only put the barbarian at a further disadvantage, for in his rage all semblance of discipline flew from him. Drizzt was ever quick to point out this with a series of slaps and twists that ultimately left Wolfgar sprawled on the ground. To his credit, though, Drizzt never taunted the barbarian or tried to humiliate him. The drow went about his task methodically, understanding that the first order of business was to sharpen the barbarian's reflexes and teach him some concern for defense. Drizzt was truly impressed with Wolfgar's raw ability. The incredible potential of the young warrior staggered him. 
At first, he feared that Wolfgar's stubborn pride and bitterness would render him untrainable, but the barbarian had risen to the challenge. Recognizing the benefits he would reap from one as adept with weapons as Drizzt, Wolfgar listened attentively. His pride, instead of limiting him into believing that he was already a mighty warrior and needed no further instruction, pushed him to grab at every advantage he could find that would help him to achieve his ambitious goals. By the end of the first week, during those times he could control his volatile temper, he was already able to deflect many of Drizzt's cunning attacks. Drizzt said little during that first week, though he would occasionally compliment the barbarian about a good parry or counter, or more generally on the improvement Wolfgar was showing in such a short time. Wolfgar found himself eagerly anticipating the drow's remarks, whenever he executed an especially difficult maneuver, and dreading the inevitable slap whenever he foolishly let himself vulnerable. The young barbarian's respect for Drizzt continued to grow. Something about the drow, living without complaint in stoic solitude, touched Wolfgar's sense of honor. He couldn't yet guess why Drizzt had chosen such an existence, but he was certain from what he'd already seen of the drow that it had something to do with principles. By the middle of the second week, Wolfgar was in complete control of Aegisfang, twisting its handle and head deftly to block against the two whirring scimitars and responding with cautious measured thrusts of his own. Driz could see the subtle changes taking place. As the barbarian stopped reacting after the fact to the scimitar's deft cuts and thrusts, and began recognizing his own vulnerable areas and anticipating the next attack. When he became convinced that Wolfgar's defenses were sufficiently strengthened, Driz began the lessons of attack. The drow knew that this style of offense would not be the most effective mode for Wolfgar. The barbarian could use his unrivaled strength more effectively than deceptive feints and twists. Wolfgar's people were naturally aggressive fighters, and striking came more easily to them than parrying. The mighty barbarian could fell a giant with a single well-placed blow. All that he had left to learn was patience. Early one dark, moonless night, as he prepared himself for the evening's lesson, Wolfgar noticed the flare of a campfire far out on the plain. He watched, mesmerized, as several others sprang suddenly into sight wondering if it might even be the fires of his own tribe. Drizzt silently approached, unnoticed by the engrossed barbarian. The drow's keen eyes had noted the stirrings of the distant campfire long before the firelight had grown strong enough for Wolfgar to see. Your people have survived, he said to comfort the young man. Wolfgar started at the sudden appearance of his teacher. You know of them? he asked. Drizzt moved beside him and stared out over the tundra. Their losses were great at the Battle of Bryn Shander, he said, and the winter that followed bid hard at the many women and children who had no men to hunt for them. They fled west to find the reindeer, banding together with other tribes for strength. The people still hold to the names of the original tribes, but in truth there are only two remaining, the tribe of the elk and the tribe of the bear. "'You were the tribe of the Elk, I believe,' Driz continued, drawing a nod from Wolfgar. "'Your people have done well. They dominate the plain now, and though more years will have to pass before the people of the Tundra regain the strength they held before the battle, the young warriors are already coming into manhood.' Relief flooded through Wolfgar. He had feared that the Battle of Bryn Shander had decimated his people to a point from which they could not recover.' 
The tundra was doubly harsh in the frozen winter, and Wolfgar often considered the possibility that the sudden loss of so many warriors, some of the tribes had lost every one of their menfolk, would doom the remaining people to slow deaths. You know much about my people, Wolfgar remarked. I have spent many days watching them, Drizzt explained, wondering what line of thought the barbarian was drawing. Learning their ways and tricks for prospering in such an unwelcoming land. Wolfgar chuckled softly and shook his head, further impressed by the sincere reverence the drow showed whenever he spoke of the natives of Icewind Dale. He had known the drow less than two weeks, but already he understood the character of Drizduarden well enough to know that his next observation about the drow was true to the mark. I'll wager you even felled deer silently in the darkness to be found in the morning light by people too hungry to question their good fortune. Drizzt neither answered the remark nor changed the set of his gaze, but Wolfgar was confident in his guess. Do you know of Hefstag? the barbarian asked after a few moments of silence. He was king of my tribe, a man of many scars and great renown. Drizzt remembered the one-eyed barbarian well. The mere mention of his name sent a dull ache into the drow's shoulder, where he had been wounded by the man's huge heavy axe. He lives, Drizzt replied, somewhat shielding his contempt. Hefstag speaks for the whole of the north now. None of true enough blood remain to oppose him in combat, or speak out against him to hold him in check. He is a mighty king, Wolfgar said, oblivious to the venom in the drow's voice. He is a savage fighter, Drew's corrected. His lavender eyes bore into Wolfgar, catching the barbarian completely by surprise with their sudden flash of anger. Wolfgar saw the incredible character in those violet pools, an inner strength within the drow whose pure quality would make the most noble of kings envious. You have grown into a man in the shadow of a dwarf of indisputable character, Drizzt scolded. Have you gained nothing for the experience? Wolfgar was dumbfounded and couldn't find the words to reply. Drizzt decided that the time had come for him to lay bare the barbarian's principles and judge the wisdom and worth of teaching the young man. A king is a man strong enough of character and conviction who leads by example and truly cares for the sufferings of his people he lectured. Not a brute who rules simply because he is the strongest. I should think you would have learned to understand the distinction. Driz noted the embarrassment in Wolfgar's face, and knew that the years in the dwarven caves had shaken the very ground that the barbarian had grown on. He hoped that Brunner's belief in Wolfgar's sense of conscience and principle proved true, for he, too, like Brunner's years before, had come to recognize the promise of the intelligent young man and found that he cared about Wolfgar's future. He turned suddenly and started away, leaving the barbarian to find the answers to his own questions. "'The lesson?' Wolfgar called after him, still confused and surprised. "'You have had your lesson for this night,' Driss replied without turning or slowing. "'Perhaps it is the most important that I will ever teach.' The drow faded into blackness of the night, though the distinct image of the lavender eyes remained clearly imprinted in Wolfgar's thoughts. The barbarian turned back to the distant campfires and wondered.